If you want to get somebody's attention, well, just tell them a great story. Hi, this is your host, Candy O'Terry. Welcome to the story behind her success. We're here in California trying to find some great stories, and I've got one for you. To tell it, though, we have to go back to the late 1960s and the early 1970s to bell-bottom jeans and love beads and the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, psychedelic drugs, and a college student from Toledo, Ohio, who just couldn't wait to get out of the house and attend Ohio State. And when she arrived on campus, she wanted to be a sorority sister. And then, within about a year, she became a radical, assisting resistance leaders, including the Black Panthers. Yes, she is an egalitarian. She's a feminist. She protested the Vietnam War. She's a civil rights activist. But that's not all this story is about. It's the story of a woman who felt things very deeply. She put her life and her freedom on the line. It's also about where she is now and how the events of her early life led her to a career in social work. It's also about what she has learned along the way. Lots of wisdom here. Her name is Nancy Newman, and this is her story. Nancy, welcome to the show. Thank you. For so many people, Nancy, going off to college and experiencing life on your own, making friends, learning new things, it's really life-changing. Take me back to your college experience. You went to Ohio State. You were a journalism major. That's right. I was very much into wanting to become a journalist, and I had done journalism in high school, and Ohio State was a good journalism program. And I took off for Ohio State like a bat out of hell because <laughs> I really wanted to get out of Toledo. And that was a good opportunity for me to do that. And when I first arrived, I kind of jumped on the conformity bandwagon. I joined a sorority. And then about a year later, I left the sorority. I felt it was a little bit too much like my hometown, very much conformity, everyone doing and thinking the same things, dressing the same way. And this just didn't sit right for me. It's not what I really wanted for myself when I left home. You know, it's interesting because that's exactly what happens when you go away from home is you get exposed to all these new things, different opinions, different ways of life. And you kind of start stepping out on your own. You said Toledo. Is that where you're originally from? Tell us a little bit about That's your childhood. Right. I was born in Toledo. My family was quite a bit different from most of the families around us. My parents had divorced when I was five. This was at a time when divorce was pretty unusual. I mean, it wasn't rare, but it was unusual. We pretty much carried on the same way as all the other families in town, except we did it from two households. I felt that our family really stood out. It was quite different to be coming from a divorced family, what they called a broken home back in the 50s. And so, you know, by the time I was ready to go for college, I was like literally sitting on the curb waiting to go. I couldn't wait to get out of what I thought was a place where everyone basically thought the same things, dressed the same way, etc., and I wanted something different. And after the first year, I got those things that were different. Well, you told us that you started out thinking that you wanted to be a sorority girl. Yes. And then that became the failed sorority girl. Bring us into your head when you're about 20, 21, because there were some issues happening in the world 
that really started to fire you up? Yes. Things were really getting stirred up on the home front regarding the Vietnam War. It was getting very intense, especially when the draft lottery was begun, and that meant the end of student deferrals. So I had been seeing a lot of civil rights demonstrations on campus, but I didn't really join into it until about my third year, and that was around the time that I met my boyfriend. And we stopped being on the sidelines, and we jumped into the action. It's one thing to believe in something. It's another thing to put your foot down and hold a sign up and say, I'm not going to take it anymore. I was motivated on a number of different levels. I, had, had, I think I had like three basic motivations going on. One was I was with this guy, and he was very cool, and he was very into being radical. Not being a hippie, but being radical. And he made a distinction between hippies and radicals. Hippies sat around on the oval all day on their ass, or throwing frisbees around and, and sniffing flowers. Radicals were people who put their ass on the line. And so I was drawn to him. I was drawn to the riots. I followed him into all of that stuff. You know, from my family background, I think prepared me to be a rebel. It kind of made me resilient. Like, I'm just going to, you know, get in there and I'm going to make the world change. The third part of me was genuinely interested in social change. I had been growing up in the 50s and early 60s. You couldn't help but notice that all the inequalities going on around. Were you, you a know, feminist? Not at that time, although Gloria Steinem is from my hometown. And she was someone I had my eye on from a very young age. She wrote a column in the Toledo Blade newspaper as a high school student. And I also wrote when I was in high school. I was the representative of my high school at the Toledo Blade. And so she was definitely a role model for me. The Kent State Massacre happened on May 4, 1970, the end of your senior year. That's right. In college, four students killed, many people injured when the National Guard was ordered to disperse an anti-war demonstration on campus. This singular event spurred demonstrations on campuses across the country. Take us back to that time in your life at Ohio State, not far from Kent State. Yeah, yeah. Ohio State is a much larger university than Kent State, so the demonstrations had way more people. It was just bigger. They were bigger and more police presence on the campus. And there were actually students getting shot at and so on, but none of them died. But they were demonstrating, same as in Ohio State. They were protesting the war primarily. I mean, that was the big hotbed right there of what was going on. The escalation of the war, Nixon's announcement that he was invading Cambodia is what took the demonstrations to a whole different level. And he had he, promised yes, that he, he was going to pull us out. That's right. And he escalated the war instead. So people went nuts. It was a crazy, crazy time, but it radicalized so many people. I mean, I can remember meeting people who were just like PhD students on their way to class, and they watched students being clubbed by police. They dropped their books, and they jumped in. It started pulling in a lot of people, and it really escalated things. And frankly, it was quite scary. We were already in it up to our eyeballs, but when this happened, there was no backing out. So when you say that you became a radical and your boyfriend was a really big influence on you, what does that mean? What sorts of things did you do? Well, I think it means 
different things to me now than it did then. But then it meant not backing down, going right to the front lines and saying, we're not taking this anymore. And, you know, get your police off our campus, get the military off our campus. This is a school. This is not a country you can invade. This is our campus. That was, you know, sort of like the outward manifestation of what I would consider radicalism, being willing to risk a certain amount of safety, although I was kind of dumbfounded when I got hit with this brick during a very kind of what started off as a very normal demonstration protest in front of a building that got really out of hand really quickly. There was thousands of students, thousands of students, maybe tens of thousands of students that surrounded a building, and police were pressing in on us. There was no turning around and getting, you couldn't get out of this crowd. I remember thinking, I've got to get out of here, but there was no way out. You were hit in the head with a brick on that particular day, and that picture of you ended up on the nightly news with Walter Cronkite. That's right. That's how my parents found out about it. Actually, my neighbor was a highway patrolman. He brought the picture over, showed it to my mother, and then it was, it was running on the news within, you know, within an hour by the time he had taken it off the wire services and shown it to her. So as a parent myself now, I think I would be just out of my mind if one of my kids was involved in something like that. And I don't know how my parents sat still. I think possibly because they knew that they couldn't come to the campus and because the campus was uh, cordoned off. And I basically couldn't leave either. I mean, I could have gone home, <laughs> could have stayed home. But at that point, I was far too emotionally committed to it. You also supported the Black Panthers. Can you talk about that a little bit? In the beginning, what I saw going on around the campus, and I believe that this is factually documented, that the demonstrations were about black students and increasing quotas or whatever of numbers of black students on campus, increasing black faculty numbers, providing more opportunities for black students beyond athletic scholarships, and those kinds of things. And then civil rights in general. I mean, there were very specific demands for our campus, and then there was just the sort of general civil rights movement. And then the anti-war movement joined up with the civil rights movement in the late 60s, at least on my campus. It probably happened earlier in places like Columbia and Berkeley. We had brainstorming meetings, how we could support the Black Panthers more. They were kind of new at that time, at least new in the Midwest. Black Panthers were being killed. Their leaders were being killed. A lot of us were very motivated to do what we could. Bottom line is that one of the things that we were asked to do is store some ammunition on behalf of the Black Panthers in one of our garages in a house that a number of us were living in. And I did not personally lay hands or eyes on this ammunition. I just know it was there. Well, you got in so much trouble that you had to leave the country. And that really started another chapter in your life. So here you are, you're in your early 20s. You've had to leave the United States and you're in Europe. I thought it was going to be fun. I thought, away we go. We're going to Europe. Next chapter. And it was a very exciting time. I'd been hearing stories of people going over to Europe, backpacking, and just having a great time. And the plan was that my boyfriend was going to go. He left a couple of months before me, and then I was going to join up with him over there in London. 
And somehow his letter breaking up with me, my plane was going in one direction, his letter was coming in the other. And uh, by the time I arrived in London, he had basically, in his mind anyway, split up with me. And he had a very cozy little life carved out for himself in London. He had gotten a job as a writer for Time Out magazine. He was interviewing rock stars, Andy Warhol, and he really didn't want his old girlfriend tagging along. I spent almost a year and a half traveling around Europe, and then while I was there, I met a British guy, and that's how I ended up coming to Canada, because he could get into Canada. He couldn't get into the States as easily. So we moved to Toronto, and in Toronto, I got a job working at a documentary film company, a small independent film company, and we were producing a series for one of the local television stations. You loved that work. I did. Yeah. Why I did you leave do, it? Well, what I loved was not having to be a receptionist. I was hired as a receptionist to begin with, but there was another woman in the office who basically just took me under her wing, and she was a producer, and she made me her researcher. So that got me away from the receptionist desk. And from there, I got into all areas of production. I was out on set. I was you know, doing production assistance, and I was learning how to edit things, and yeah, it was Well, it sounds like your career was moving along, but then you left that career. Tell me why. Well, eventually my boyfriend and I moved out to the West Coast, and I continued working in film there. I worked for the National Film Board of Canada, and I worked for the CBC. I was also struggling with the fact that in my work, I couldn't seem to progress beyond this assistant stage. The people who were in charge were all men, and they had a little bit of a thing going on that if you wanted to progress, you basically had to, you know, be willing to hang out with the producers on personal time, and, you know, there was also all kinds of innuendo about sex and so on that if if you wanted to progress beyond contract position or your assistant position or get better jobs or whatever, this is what you had to be prepared to do, and I wasn't prepared to do that. Well, there's a whole movement about that called Me Too, and you were just on the early fringes of that, although I think that has always existed, even if you think about the old times of Hollywood and the casting couch, right? Especially if you wanted to get ahead. Hmm. Like, if you were okay with staying at the reception desk, or you were okay with being somebody's assistant, then it wasn't really a big deal. But there was always like this implication or an out-and-out invitation that you could trade that kind of those lower positions for something better if you were willing to put out. Enter a career change to social work. Yes. But when I first met you here in California, you said, and I quote, I was born a social worker, but I ignored it. Talk to me about that. Okay. So I've kind of alluded to the fact that growing up in the 50s, uh, my parents divorced and we felt a little different. There was a lot going on in my family other than divorce. I mean, divorce was just the kind of outward appearance of my family. I mean, it was big. I mean, it had a really major impact on the whole family. But there were other things going on. My mother married an alcoholic, a very intense guy who had a, a big guy who had a big temper. And he terrorized, basically, my brother, and he crossed boundaries with me. Things were very uncomfortable, and that was part of the reason why I wanted to leave home as quickly as I did. And 
I realized when I kind of fell into social work, and literally I was just offered a job kind of out of the blue, and it wasn't something I ever thought that I wanted to do. I really wanted to go on in journalism. I started with so-called street kids in this job, and I started getting really curious about their families. Not my family, their families. (laughs) How these kids ended up in the situation that they were in. In those days, the government took kids in care who were living on the streets. They don't do that anymore. They basically just leave them. But I was working in a situation where a lot of these kids were coming into this group home. Some of them were Aboriginal kids, and they had been in care all their lives. And some of them were sons and daughters of very high-ranking or so-called high-functioning people in the community. They all had one thing in common. They were estranged from their families. Their families, they were cut off from their families. So I got interested in their stories and what was going on in their families. At the same time, I was offered an opportunity to do some family therapy training. Part of the family therapy training involves looking at your own family situation. So lo and behold, I decided to do that, even though I'd been trying to avoid it. Which is an awful lot like opening up Pandora's box. Exactly. Social work, it sounds to me, healed some of your own wounds. You really ended up specializing in family therapy and working with kids at risk. Yes. Even though I never wanted to be a social worker, it seemed like it was fated to happen. Back home when I was younger, I was always kind of like the mediator. Honestly, at a very young age, my parents were coming to me for advice, but I tried to push all that away. And then when I came back at it, you know, as an adult, with the help of a lot of professional training and so on, and basically the insight that I got was an incredible gift from one of my professors, was to be introduced to something called Bowen Family Systems Theory. And that's a multi-generational look at family emotional process. So it wasn't just looking at what went on in my own little nuclear family or our broken home or whatever. It was looking at generations before. You worked for Douglas College for 20 years, and I'm guessing that you love teaching if you did it for 20 years. What do you give? What do you get as a teacher? Tell me about that joy. I was hired to teach about family systems to these students who were in a social work diploma program. But a lot of them were going out and working with these so-called street kids again. And so it was really important for them, I thought, as well as it was for me, to have some knowledge about yourself and what you bring to the table and what unfinished business of your own might be getting in the way of you encouraging other people to make changes in their lives and also not forgetting that these kids all are attached to families. You are retired now, but you have a master's as well in creative writing and a memoir that has been in the works for many years. It's this story, isn't it? Yes, it has been in the works for many years, and it is this story. So basically, the way my memoirs kind of begins is during my radical student days. It just seemed like a natural beginning. Rather than beginning at the beginning of my life or, you know, kind of now looking back over my life, I thought I would begin with the hot spots, and uh, that's one of them definitely. So I spend quite a bit of time on these various escapades that I had in my 20s and these various relationships here and there. So What's the lesson in that book? Good question. I'm not sure I've gotten to that yet. 
One of the things I want to say about writing a memoir is it's incredibly difficult to write a memoir to begin with, but it's also very difficult to write a memoir after you've been a family therapist and you kind of have this sort of therapy tone in your voice, you know, like it's really hard to show surprise on the page. Yawn, you know. (laughs) How can I come at my own material with a fresh voice and a fresh eye and just a fresh mind, you know, that doesn't have all the answers and doesn't know how the story evolves? Well, I'm hoping that your appearance here on the story behind her success is going to be a jumpstart for you because it is an incredible story. Freedom of speech is a cornerstone of our Constitution. Speaking your mind, holding a sign, standing up for something that you believe in is a right. How do you feel about that now in 2022 versus 1970? These have been a rough couple of years for this country. Yes, absolutely. And I totally believe in freedom of speech. However, I also believe in safety. I still participate in demonstrations, but I go about it a heck of a lot safer now. I usually stay on the outside of the crowd. Although the Women's March in 2017, I was right there in the thick of it. Things have gotten, I guess, I don't know if I want to say even more dangerous, because they were quite dangerous in the 60s, but there was a lot more danger involved, different here than in Canada, because, simply because of the differences in the gun laws. So freedom of speech and people carrying guns around are really scary to me. Next few questions, we ask everybody who sits where you are. Nancy, when an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? Well, I try and think it through. A lot of what we do in life and things we love in life are powered by the emotional parts of our brain, but we really need the thinking parts of our brain to get us through things. So I think I'm pretty good at problem solving, but I think that's only because I've come to learn how to use more the thinking part of my brain respecting the emotional part, but making good use of the thinking part. You have shared with us that you are a mom. How did becoming a mom change you? Well, I think it makes you much more aware of (laughs) the dangers out in the world. You know, like I was talking about being in a demonstration and so on, not just for myself, but for others. I mean, it's the greatest thing in the world that ever happened to me. For a long time, I didn't think I was going to have children. I uh, had gotten caught up in the um, Dalkon Shield debacle back in the early 1970s. And as a result of that, I was unable to get pregnant naturally. And I didn't think I was going to be getting pregnant because IVF didn't come along until much later in the 70s. And then by that time, my husband and I had gotten together and he had two young boys. So I thought, I'm going to be a stepmom. It's great. And I love those kids. And then along comes my son. My husband and I had a son together through IVF. Must have felt like a miracle for you. Yeah, it really did. And that has totally changed my life. Actually, I would say that's probably the high point of my life, having those kids. What is the best piece of advice that you've ever received, Nancy? And can you pass that along to our listeners? To think about how you can put your best self forward, no matter what the situation So in order to do that, we know we have to clear out all the debris, all the cobwebs, all the interferences, all the voices that are telling us maybe we should do this, that, or the other thing, and really think about what you, your true self, should be doing and how do you bring that true self to the table to any relationship or any situation. If you could talk to 20-year-old Nancy, 
what would you tell her? Smarten up. Stop chasing this guy around. I wish I had gotten with, I guess, the women's movement earlier and would have stood up for myself more and kind of drew some boundaries and said, no, I'm not doing that. Final question. And thank you very much for agreeing to do this interview because it's been fantastic. In this chapter of your life, and I do think we live our lives in chapters, what does success mean to you? I truly believe that success is the ability to form good relationships with people and to sustain those relationships. The ability to do that is a superpower. I want to say thank you, Nancy Newman, for being our guest this week for telling your story on the story behind her success. Thank you. You're very welcome. And that's the story behind her success for this week. If you know a woman I should interview for the show, reach out and tell me about her. Just go to my website, candyoterry.com. There's also a full library of stories for you to listen to anytime you need a little dose of inspiration. Follow me on Facebook at Candy O'Terry Official and on all other platforms at Candy O'Terry. And whether you're listening on one of our radio affiliates or from your smartphone, we'll have a fresh episode for you next week on the story behind her success. And remember, when we lift each other up, we all rise. <laughs>